Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you again today as we continue in our series called Finding Faith. This has been an incredible journey such a great conversation that we've been having over the last few weeks. If you're somebody that wants to grow in your faith, we hope that it has been encouraging to you to see all the incredible ways that we can see the fingerprints of our Creator in everything that has been made, including our very own DNA, the written code that directs our lives, that, that has shaped us and formed us was written by an incredible God. If you're somebody that that has doubt, if you're somebody that's not sure whether or not you believe or you still have questions, we trust that these discussions and conversations and topics that we've been covering have been something that have at least stirred your thinking and stirred your heart in beginning to move towards a complete picture, a more full, fuller picture of who God is and how He put you together. We have looked at everything from the creation of all things. I mean, we've gone all the way back to looking at why there's suffering in the world. We've tackled theories like the theory of evolution, and we've spoken about the nature of God in the Bible. But we're kind of coming to a point here towards the end of the series where we want to see what God's greatest self-revelation is. Like We can deduce so much about our Creator by looking at what has been created around us, by looking at the desires of our own hearts. But there is no greater statement of who God is than by looking at what God would say about Himself, not only in the Scriptures, not only about what we read in the Bible, but in who the Bible is really about, what the whole story is really about. In other words, how did God say absolutely everything He's ever wanted to say to this world? How did He show Himself? How did He reveal Himself? And the answer is in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sent to this earth, literally God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. This is unique amongst all belief systems in the world, that God the Creator would leave His throne and step down to become a part of His creation in order to save all of us. That's the beauty of the message of the gospel, which simply means good news. And so we want to talk about Jesus today, specifically the claims of Jesus. And we know that the claims that Jesus made got him into a lot of trouble. In fact, it got him crucified. His disciples and followers that said that they had seen him resurrected from the dead, they themselves were put to death for that claim. And even today, when you make a statement about the just the reality of God's love, and the salvation that is in Christ Jesus himself, it itself is an offensive claim in, a, in our world at this point. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And for some reason, when people hear this message of Jesus, when they encounter that imprint of God, they seem to get really upset. They seem to get uh, you know, offended quite a lot. And, and that's not unique in our, in our culture at the moment. We live in the midst of cancel culture. If you don't know what cancel culture is, it means that basically anything that you have ever said or done can and will be held against you. 
and people that you know ate at a restaurant 20 years ago um, would find that if that restaurant has now supported some cause that anybody who's ever attended there just guilty by association you're cancelled if you liked an album from the 1980s maybe it was vanilla ice and that was your favorite song some of the people watching today would know who that is and uh, and if you like vanilla is way too white and therefore you're cancelled if you you know if you watched a certain tv show you're cancelled if you liked a certain artist you're cancelled if you've ever said anything and your mind has changed you're cancelled we live in a cancel culture but if you really want to be cancelled if you really want to upset some people if you really want to be offensive then you need to say that you believe in Jesus, that you believe in the Bible and in the scriptures. This will get you into trouble in our world at this point. I remember sitting on an airplane traveling in the U.S. and I was reading a book uh, called God Has a Name. And as I was reading this book, um, it has big bold letters on the cover. There was a lady that sat next to me that obviously didn't believe in Christianity and she was so antagonistic in the question. She immediately started asking me about how I could believe in this God. If you want to upset people, then you need to say that you believe in the claims of Jesus. They were upsetting then, offensive then, and they are offensive now. Why are they so offensive? Whether it's in the media, on social media, at schools, in the workplace, in parliament, or online, it seems to be pretty much the most offensive subject that we can speak about. I remember when we started our church, Anchor Church, and we did an introductory video to talk about what we believe God was calling us to do. And people, many people saw this video and people started commenting on it. And I remember one guy commenting and saying, I think I just threw up in my mouth <laughs> for watching this video about a group of people that authentically wanted to do something in the city. I remember another guy saying, um, saying something along the lines of another effing hipster church, bunch of idiots. And I remember thinking, I don't even really know if I classify as a hipster. I don't really feel like I fit that category. But according to this guy, the very fact that we could dare to claim that we believed in Jesus made us idiots. And so this is an objection that if you are a believer, that you may have faced. And if you're not, something that you may have felt. We live in a world that, uh, that claims tolerance, that says there's tolerance for all belief systems and all people and all races. Um, they claim religious tolerance, especially except if you're a Christian. They find Christianity offensive because of its exclusivity, because it claims to be the only truth. And so, in a world where people talk about my truth versus your truth, ultimately relative truth, they say that what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. The common response that we get often when sharing our faith with people is how do you know that your religion is right and everybody else's religion is wrong? How dare you claim that, you are, that yours is true and mine is not? So the objection is that it is offensive to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Could we say that? How can we say that? The rabbi Shumli Botiach said, I am absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. 
It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hatred. People say that religion leads to hatred in this world. Let's start off, first of all, by asking the question, why are there so many religions in our world? If religion is apparently so divisive and so destructive and, and produces hate, then why does it exist? Why did we as a species, especially if we were, according to atheists, an evolving species, why have we held fast to this idea? Why do we long for meaning and purpose? Why do we long for truth deep down on the inside of ourselves? Why are we always searching? Like C.S. Lewis said, if life had no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. But we long for this truth deep within us. Acts 17 shows where Paul was addressing some religious people, talking about religion and people that had, you know, a variety of, you know, religious ideas, philosophies and gods themselves. And so Acts 17 verse 22 to 29, we see how Paul is in Athens and he is talking to some of these religious men. It says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Ultimately, if God created us, then we have in our hearts this very sense of where we came from. God is not far from us. He is close. In Him we live and move and have our being. And we have that sense that there is a creator because we're his children. God is not a religion. He's not something fashioned with human hands. He's not an idol made of gold or, or silver or stone. He is the creator and he doesn't live in temples made by man. And so we can clearly see how the very fact that we were created by God means that, that eternity is inside of our hearts. God is bigger than human religion. Essentially, all these religions, all these faith systems that we find in the world originate from that inner desire. More than it being an explanation, a primitive explanation of why natural phenomena exist. You know, that's what the scientists would say. They'd say, oh, there's lightning. We don't understand lightning, so we'll just say it's God. No, that is not what produced or, gave produced or gave rise to religion. What gave rise to religion is the longing that we have inside of us for truth, to be reconnected 
with our Creator. All religions, and this includes Christianity when you consider Christianity as a religion, is based on this understanding that God exists, number one, and number two, we are somehow separated from Him, that we need to be reconnected with Him, that we need to find Him, this longing to be connected to our God. And so human religion has taken on this idea of creating commandments and steps and procedures and programs and activities in order to attempt to reconnect with God. Essentially, it's man trying to get to God. And even Christianity, when it is misunderstood and misappropriated, can become another one of these stairways to heaven or these, these ladders to try and reach God or reconnect with God. The problem that all of religion faces, every single program, every single uh, uh, legalistic uh, pr process that we can develop to try and reconnect with God, the problem with it is stated in Romans 3 verse 23, which is simply this. It says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, all of our efforts, no matter how noble they might seem, no matter how hard we might strive to be good and to be religious, to be pious in, and, and devoted in our attempts to reconnect with God, can never be good enough. We always fall short because there's no such thing as weighing up your goodness versus your badness and hoping that your goodness would be enough. Enough is not enough. It needs to be perfect because God is perfectly righteous. And so we can never do enough to earn salvation. We can never be perfectly good or sinless or guiltless. None of us are. We have all made mistakes. We've all sinned. We've all done things wrong. So this is actually the first point of Christianity, true biblical Christianity, gospel-centric Christianity. The first point is that we are sinners, that we have fallen short, that we have, that self-help isn't an option for us because we cannot help ourselves beyond our own sinfulness. The gospel, the message of the Bible, therefore, contrary to popular belief, is not a moral code. It's not a set of rules or laws to follow. It's not a program to try and get to God. It's a proclamation that God instead made a way to us. That in Jesus, He came to save us even though we couldn't save ourselves. And it's the only belief system in all of these religions where the Creator Himself gave Himself up in order to save His creation. All religion is about man trying to get to God. But Christianity is the proclamation that God came to man. Jesus therefore said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, that claim of Jesus that He was the only way to be reunited with God is an offensive claim. But ultimately, Jesus was saying that faith and the gospel and our religion, is, it's not a religion, but a person called Jesus. Robert F. Capon said, Christianity is not a religion. It is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity 
dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is the astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. It is the bizarre proclamation that religion is over, period. It's not a man-made system. It's a person called Jesus. So can we then, based on the claims of Jesus, claim exclusive truth? Well, the question would be, what is non-exclusive truth? What does a non-exclusive truth look like? And how could you claim a non-exclusive truth without changing the very definition of truth? For example, if I said to you that 4 plus 4 equals 8, that means that 8 is true. It is the true answer. But 8 being true necessarily therefore excludes 6, 7, 9, and 10 as being true. If you say that 4 plus 4 equals 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, you haven't stated a truth. Truth must therefore necessarily exclude untruth. It, 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 that's by nature. You can't have truth without it stating something as being exclusive. Some people deny this. But even to deny the reality of absolute objective truth, if you deny that reality, then your very denial cannot by your own de definition be true. If there is no absolute truth, then how can what you are saying be absolutely true? By the way, Christianity is not the only religion or belief system that claims exclusivity. You can go to most Christian nations in the world, I would say all Christian nations in the world, and if you had a differing point of view or a different faith system, you would not risk or run the risk of being murdered for what you believed. But in other places of the world regarding other religions, this is not the case. Muslims claim radical exclusivity. Buddha rejected two fundamental assertions of Hinduism, the authority of the Vedas and the caste system. Hinduism is uncompromising on karma, reincarnation and the authority of the Vedas. Atheists reject the viewpoint of those who believe in God as untrue. Atheists themselves are exclusive. They say if you believe in God, what you believe is untrue. Even Baha'ism, which is the cosmic embrace of all religions, rejects religions that claim exclusive truth. So they say, well, we accept all religion unless you're a religion that doesn't accept all religion, then we don't accept you. And so all statements of truth are necessarily uh, exclusive in what they claim. You may have heard people say, there are many roads. Uh, it's, these are all different roads up the same mountain. All the different paths, the different religions are leading to the same God. But the only people who say that are people who really know nothing about religion. Buddhism, for example, doesn't even have a God. And so how could it be going in the same direction? Some people say, well, religion is all about the same thing. It's about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. But obviously, those that don't even believe in a God, um, for example, the Buddhists, would not be on the same page or the same mountain for that matter. Jesus did make some outrageous claims, and that's really what we want to look at today. But here's the thing. 
any nutcase can make a claim. You know, there have been many people that have claimed to be God or claim to even be the Son of God, claim to be the Messiah, claim to be the Savior of the world. And many of them have ended up in, you know, insane asylums uh, or, or just vanishing from history because of one simple fact. They could never back up their claims with truth or with action. And so it's kind of like boxers. If you ever watch boxing and you watch the pre-match interviews, those I've never seen a boxer go into one of those interviews saying, I don't really know if I'm going to win. I, it's going to be close. I'm not sure if I have what it takes. You know, almost exclusively, all of those boxers claim to be the greatest, claim to win, if, you know, that they're going to definitely dominate their opponents. It's kind of part of the mental game. And so boxers like to talk it up, but the truth is most of them get knocked out um, within the first few rounds. And this is what made somebody like Muhammad Ali uh, such a great boxer, was that he did what he said he was going to do. In fact, between 1960 and 1977, he won 55 out of 57 fights, mostly by knockout. He beat Hall of Famers like Sonny Liston and Joe Frazier and George Foreman and Ken Norton. Then there are, are, are guys that claim to be the greatest, but get knocked out uh, in the first round. When we look at Jesus, he made outrageous claims. But the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus shows that he backed up his claims with action. Even the movement of early Christianity proved incredibly reliable, even according to secular historical standards. We have secular historians like Tacticus, Lucian, Suetonius, and Josephus who recorded that Jesus lived, that he had a great following, and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. And they interviewed many of the people that had seen Jesus alive after his resurrection and made historical records of these eyewitnesses. A lot of those people that made those claims Again, if they were just lying about the fact that they had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead, then they would not have been willing to die for a lie. But all, nearly all the disciples, excluding uh, John, who was exiled to Patmos, were put to death for that claim. And many of the other followers in the time of Nero's persecution died because they said they had seen Jesus alive. And so they clearly believed that Jesus had been risen from the dead and had seen him alive. There's a lot of evidence historical that, historically uh, that we can look at in regards to that claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. But to save time, um, you know, we'll just leave it at that. You can go ahead and do some of that research for yourself. C.S. Lewis spoke about the Jesus trilemma, that Considering the claims of Jesus, the things he said about himself, he was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. It had to be one of those three things because we historically know what Jesus claimed about himself. Jesus made outrageous claims that no one else would make, including that he was God, that he possessed authority and the attributes and adoration that would only be due to God. He claimed authority over creation, the ability to forgive sins, power over life and death. He claimed to be the source of truth and the only way 
to life and to God. And so of all the gods, leaders and historical figures in history, no human being has personally made these claims about themselves. So considering the claims that Jesus made about himself, he, he was either lying or he was a complete lunatic or he was who he said he was. And I want to look at those three options real quick. The first one, Jesus as a liar. If Jesus knew that his message was false and he was willing, even though he knew it wasn't true, to make those claims and deceive thousands in his lifetime, tens of thousands, and since his lifetime here on earth, billions, then that would make Jesus literally the greatest villain in history, especially considering the fact that many, many, many people have died for believing in what Jesus claimed to be. And he would be a fool as well because he himself was crucified for what he claimed. The problem is, is that if Jesus was a liar, how could he at the same time be considered even by skeptics as a great, if not the greatest moral teacher in history? His words have inspired, you know, nations have, have, have been built upon his, the principles that he spoke about and the teachings. You know, society has developed around those teachings. Moral law, even judicial law, has often been based on the teachings of Jesus. It's unthinkable, therefore, that such lies could come from one of the purest and most noble characters in history that's inspired people to love through 20 centuries by his teachings. And so the idea of Jesus as a liar is simply inconsistent with what we see in his teachings. So what if he actually believed that he was God? So he wasn't lying on purpose, but he believed he was God even though he was, which would make him a lunatic. If he believed he was God but was mistaken, if he truly believed that he created the world and saw Abraham and had authority over death, if these things were not true, then Jesus was probably certifiably insane. The problem, once again, when you study the life of Jesus, is that it does not display the characteristics of insanity. He was in control and, in con and consistent in his interactions with others. He, his teachings were some of the greatest ever recorded. He was often challenged by lawyers and Pharisees and and academics and always had quick and stunning answers that silenced them. And so it's not consistent with what we know about Jesus and his interactions with others to say that he was a lunatic. So if he wasn't lying about saying who he said he was and if he wasn't a lunatic, then the only answer is that he truly was who he said he was, that he was Lord. And he has the credentials to back this up. Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime every messianic prophecy that had been made hundreds of years before his birth, even including those that he had no control over. For example, the place of his birth. From where he was born, to how he would die, to what he would do while he was alive. All in all, Jesus fulfilled over 100 prophecies, and these have been verified historically. What's the possibility of this just being a coincidence? Well, if we take just 16 of those prophecies, not 109 of them, but just 16, then the probability of that happening is 1 in 10 to the power of 45. 
That's how improbable it is that Jesus would fulfill just 16 of those prophecies, never mind over a hundred of them. If he was God, then we should see some supernatural confirmations that demonstrate his authority over nature and over sickness and over sin and over death. Well, in Jesus' life, he walked on water, multiplied bread, calmed the storms, healed the sick, and raised the dead. But those are just fables, some say. Those are just legends that grew over time. And that would be true if we see or saw these legends growing over time, like we see in other cases where a thousand years after the original story or the original accounts of the person's life, all of a sudden, you know, we hear the story of some miracle that happened. But in the case of Jesus, we have writings, we have historical records from just a decade or two after his actual life that claim, where people have claimed to be eyewitnesses of these miracles. And so if that came out at that time, the people that were there during Jesus's lifetime were still alive. They would have denied that that had happened and it would have just faded out in history. In the same way that if I had claimed that I had done a miracle and nobody had ever witnessed it, people would say, but we were there that day. We saw Adrian when he was preaching or when he was in that moment and no miracle happened. And so the people were still alive to be able to deny those miracles if they hadn't happened. Legends take generations to develop. If not, they would have been discredited by those alive at the time. But again, historians interviewed eyewitnesses of these accounts and some date back to 30 AD. Jesus is also the only religious leader to perform these miracles. His greatest demonstration, however, was in his authority over death. Many talk about the afterlife. Many religious leaders and moral teachers talk about the afterlife. But Jesus showed that he had authority over it. This is a whole different kettle of fish. If you can go, if you travel to any of the religious leaders' graves today, those great moral teachers that are, are hailed in history of, as, as being in some way divine, you will still find their bones buried there. But if you went to the grave of Jesus, you will find that that tomb is empty. Jesus demonstrated that he was who he said he was in being raised from the dead, conquering death. Even in his life, when he raised Lazarus, he had the ability to call Lazarus forth from death. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus said this. He said, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority, Jesus said, to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus claimed to have authority over life and death. Was he lying? Was he a lunatic? Or was he Lord? And he did. He isn't a liar or a lunatic, and so he must be Lord. If he is Lord, then what he said must be true. And if what he said was true, then he is the only way to God. The only way for us to be reconnected with our Creator. And that necessarily means that all other ways 
of trying to connect to God are not true. Dr. James Allen Francis said these now famous words. He said, 19 centuries have come and gone. And today, he, Jesus, is the central figure for much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, and all the navies that ever sailed, and all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. Jesus is unique among all. He is Lord. And what he came to do, what he proclaimed to do, was to die for you. He claimed that he was giving himself up so that we might be saved, forgiven, and reunited with our Father. And so everything that Jesus did, his life and death and resurrection was for you. It was so that you could receive salvation and be reunited with God, spending eternity with Him. So this isn't really about us deciding what truth is. This is about us receiving what God has declared to be the truth as the author of truth, as ultimate truth, through the person of Jesus. I want to tell you today that you can believe in the claims of Jesus, including the claim that He loves you and that God loves you, that He has come to save you. All that we need to do is surrender our hearts, surrender our lives to that God and receive His grace. This is the good news. It's not a religion. It's not a system. It's not a program. It's not a moral code. It is receiving a person, a relationship with Him, a person called Jesus. He truly is Lord, and He can be Lord of your life as you surrender to Him. If that's something that you would like to do right now, then let's go ahead and pray together. You can repeat these words after me. Just say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are who you claimed to be, that your word is true, and that you died for me, for the forgiveness of my sin. I thank you, God, that today I can receive that forgiveness and that grace, and through Jesus, be reunited with you. Thank you, Father, for saving me. If you prayed that prayer today, let us know. Send us an email, info at anchorjoburg.org. If you're not ready to pray that prayer, but you want to keep going on the journey, then connect with us, keep watching with us. If you have any questions, send us an email, info at anchorjoburg.org. We'd love to continue the discussion with you and journey with you as you discover your own faith. And so next week, we're going to talk about doubt. If you struggle with doubt, you want to, can I be a Christian if I still doubt? We're going to talk about the benefit of doubt next Sunday. Look out for that. But we're excited about what God is doing. We're praying for you. We're believing with you. We trust that God is going to speak to you and use you this week. So have a great week, everybody. We will see you again next Sunday.